Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today I'm talking to Barnaby Lashbrook, who's the CEO at Time Etc. He and I have known each other for a number of years. He he had another business that was acquired by Pipex when I was managing director there, Supernames, which was a domain registration and hosting business. We both left Pipex and he, he set up Time Etc, a virtual assistant business. I'm going to talk to I talked to him today about setting up a business and and remote versus office-based and building culture. This I think it's something I've got a blind spot on. The businesses that I've built and had success with have all been office-based and I struggle to see how building an entirely remote workforce, oh, it's not even something I want to contemplate doing. It just seems too hard. Uh, Barnaby's now got 700 employees, part-time remote workers in the UK and the United States. So we chat about some of the things that are going well and not so well. We talk about the culture, the cultural difference between maybe US and UK that stops entrepreneurs in the UK outsourcing tasks so they can spend their time on things that are more useful, even reading stories to their bedtime stories to their children. And we talk a bit about fear, Barnaby's own journey into becoming a CEO with emotional intelligence and how that impacts him day to day. And it made me think about my own fear and confronting that. I remember many years ago reading a little book called The Little Book of Calm. And in there, there was a page on setting up a fuck them fund. Basically, it said, have three months salary in the bank. Anyone can stretch three months salary to six. And then you go to work as a as a volunteer, not as a wage slave. And that was 20 years ago. And I've been a volunteer ever since. And so even now, occasionally I wake up in the middle of the night. Nobody wakes up in the middle of the night thinking good thoughts. You wake up in the middle of the night thinking, what if it all goes terribly wrong and they repossess the house? And then I remember, because I still have just a chunk of cash put away that I won't touch, that is just my safety blanket, and roll over and go back to sleep. So anyway, let's get on with the conversation with Barnaby. I am Barnaby Lashbrook. I'm the founder and CEO of Time Etc. Um, and what Time Etc. does is it helps entrepreneurs to achieve more without working harder. That's our mission. And we do that by connecting time poor entrepreneurs on the one side of the equation with very, very talented and experienced stay at home mums who used to be executive assistants on the other side of the equation. We link those two people together and the idea is that they work together to provide really valuable work to the stay-at-home mums because they've kind of left the traditional labour market and to really help those entrepreneurs to kind of push on and achieve more without the answer being just to sort of work harder and beast themselves with what they're trying to achieve. And where are your virtual assistants located in the world? So they're all over the UK and the US, pretty much every state in the US, and just distributed really all over the UK. And how many of them are there now? About 700. Um, It sort of fluctuates, it kind of goes up and down, but uh, latest count will be about 700 of them, all working independently. They're all freelance service providers, so they often provide their services to clients in their local area directly. They'll then provide services through time, etc., to our clients as well. Okay. How long has the business been going? It has been going about 11 years, I think. I think we're coming up for our 12th year. It's been going a while, and at the very beginning, this was a really difficult idea to sell to people, particularly in the UK. It was very, very scary for people to think about working with someone they weren't going to meet um, and sort of trusting that person with access to various things like their email. 
And what's been lovely over that kind of time period is we've got better and better at what we do, but also our clients have got more and more relaxed and more and more used to remote working. And so we've really like seen the last couple of years, things start to, to really develop quite nicely. And is that a cultural shift or is that a technology driven shift? I think it's cultural because I think the technology actually is really similar to how it was 11 or 12 years ago. But, you know, people are just getting gradually more familiar with this idea that, you know, there's a big workforce out there and the sort of way that you traditionally did things, which was finding someone extremely local to you, even within sort of easy commuting distance of your office or, or wherever you tend to be, it really limits your options. It really limits who you can work with. And so, you know, perhaps a big cultural shift in, in people just being a little bit more prepared to realise that they can cast the net a little bit wider. And then when they do, they get a reward because they can find a much bigger pool of people and they can find, you know, really the right person to work with them instead of having to kind of put up with whoever they can find locally. And what types of things are your clients getting people to do for them? Has that changed? I would say that the role of an executive assistant has changed in that time in general, really. So I think when we started, it was all really sort of traditional executive assistant duties. So, you know, managing someone's diary, maybe corresponding with people on their behalf, trying to sort of arrange their time and make their time efficient. And especially for our small business clients, the role of the assistant has expanded quite massively over the last 10 years or so. And so it now encompasses a lot of things like social media and keeping sort of social media presences up to date, but also quite a lot of content generation and writing. We've got assistants that will help people produce podcasts, for example, and produce regular content because things like, you know, producing regular content is getting more and more important for, you know, the kind of entrepreneurs of today. So a real widening of the role. I think the role has become sort of overspill in general for entrepreneurs. So less entrepreneurs now are going out and finding assistant to manage their calendar. More entrepreneurs now are going out and finding someone that's capable of dealing with almost anything that spills off of their to-do list, but that they still need to get done. You said originally that uh, culture was caught up with your ability to deliver. Was it culturally more difficult in the US as well, or was the US more open to virtual assistance than the UK was when you launched in the US? We launched in the US comparatively recently, so back in 2013. And so it's difficult to make a direct comparison, but certainly my perception at the time was that people in the US do not have the same cultural hang-ups about working remotely, but they also generally, this is kind of my general experience, are much more comfortable with the thought of delegating. So I think in the UK, you still actually get quite a lot of resistance just around sort of people giving themselves the license to offload some of their to-do list. I think for some people that can feel almost like a failure that they're sort of saying, I need someone else to do this stuff for me, or it can have lots of sort of other issues associated with it, like people feeling like they're belittling their assistant by handing over a sort of minor admin task and they don't really want to put their assistant in that position and so they'll do it themselves. Whereas in the US, the attitude is uh, really much more direct um, and, you know, people have really no problem with, you know, having an honest and frank relationship with their assistant and, you know, really utilising that assistant to get rid of those tasks that would otherwise hold that, that person back. So I think the US is probably ahead in terms of the general cultural thing about using remote uh, people. Um, but I also think there's a, there's a, there is a cultural difference there um, and people in the US in general are, are much more comfortable with this kind of delegating um, thing, whereas, you know, we have to sometimes really persuade people that they are worthy of being able to delegate to someone in the UK. Huh. And how do you, how do you, how do you do that then? How do you persuade somebody that they're worthy? Well, um, one of the things we love to do is like have, is just talk people through their week um, and, and, you know, really like sort of investigate the, the kind of challenge that they're, that they're facing as they go through their week. Because once you 
can talk to someone about all the stuff that they're doing that they probably could get someone else to do, then, you know, that's kind of where the process starts, that people start to, it starts to slowly dawn on people once you start going through, like, you know, a big list of things that actually you could offload to someone else. And if you did that, maybe you'd spend, you'd be able to get home in time for your kid's bedtime. Maybe you'd be able to get to the gym every couple of days like you really want to. Maybe you'd be able to go out and fill your pipeline for the next 12 months. I think you have to show people that it's not about, you know, having an assistant isn't a luxury. It's not about, um, you know, you, you become successful, you get an assistant and, you know, that's a bit of a luxury and, you know, rich and successful people have assistants because they don't want to do this stuff themselves. If you show people that having an assistant is the key to achieving more, it's the key to doing some of those things that you want to do in your life, it's the key to seeing more of your family, then, you know, that, that really helps to challenge the perception that it's a luxury and maybe not something that, that you know, that person would indulge in and it becomes more of a essential tool which is what we really believe it it is it, that sounds that sounds like you're selling a solution rather than you know a phone answering service you, the way you've just sort of pitched that sounds very different to the pitch that i see from some of your competitors well we've always sort of stood out from say phone answering services because they do kind of one thing and they you know you redirect their your calls to them and they have an assistant on the other end of the phone that answers the phone call and takes a very simple message and sends it, it on. So that's, you know, really very like a kind of human voicemail. And right from the beginning, what we've done is really got, you know, very in depth with people's businesses and, and provided sort of full executive assistance support to people. Um, and I think what we're maybe getting better at doing is, talking about what that can do to you emotionally and what it can enable and what you know yeah you know if you talk to someone about that they'll have more time to get home and see their kids and read their kids a bedtime story that's a really emotive but very very important benefit of using a service like ours and we've really i think we've really developed that you know we started without that kind of message and we've really developed that message over the last few years Okay, I, I've got um, your models changed, hasn't it? Because originally you had you didn't have seven hundred remote workers. You had you had everyone in the office, and uh, it's interesting. I I quite often, I, well, I certainly I wrote I wrote a blog post recently about about remote workers versus office based, and I just wonder whether you have a view about how easy it is to build a culture. I mean, you know, you had one business model and you flipped. So, you know, why did you start with an office? Why did you flip? And, and what, we'll go there and then I'll ask you some more questions. Okay. So, um, we started with an office really because that's, my perception was very strongly that you had to have an office and you had to have people in that office in order to be able to, for example, build a culture so this was back when I was 23 or 24. Um, and the idea of working with people remotely was very scary, I suppose, ironically enough. Um, and, um, and I didn't think that I'd be able to do the things that I really wanted to do in terms of building a culture. And that's really what I wanted to do when I started Time, etc., is kind of um, experiment with some of the things that I'd seen people like yourself doing in terms of culture. And so we set about recruiting people in this very small geographic area um, around Birmingham in the UK and really selling their time, you know, sort of splitting their time up and selling it to people just like you would if you were running an accountancy practice or a legal company. The challenge with that was that if you're running an accountancy practice or a legal company, then basically you've got a huge amount of budget to play with. And you can afford to split up people's time, divide their time up and, and sell it to your clients and have some margin. If you're selling executive assistant services, there's a very small margin in that in comparison. And it was really impossible for us to take a person and pay them a good salary, divide their time up and then sell that on to clients. Plus, 
actually building a culture turned out to be much harder than I thought. Um, you know, maybe that was inexperience, but it was difficult and I found it really tough going. What our clients were telling us was they weren't prepared to pay as much as we had to charge in order to make that model work. And, and things plateaued. We got to about a million pounds worth of revenue and we hit a sort of ceiling and I couldn't get the business past that ceiling. Um, and very quickly we sort of ran into lots of people issues which never really went away and I sort of lacked the experience to really tackle those at the time. And so what started as trying to recruit lots of people, have them right there and have an office full of people to build a great culture turned into really quite a negative culture and the business that I couldn't grow and I couldn't scale. And so then really what happened was I got back to my roots and I had had a business before that was a, really a technology business first and foremost, and it had grown with very low staffing levels. And I set about turning Time Etc. into a human-powered technology company. And that's what it is today. We automate sort of 95% of what we do, and then we do the remaining 5% very humanly and as well as we possibly can in a very, very human way. And because we turned it into a technology company, we were able to start working with people remotely, which was a huge leap of faith. But those people had been coming to us for years. So stay-at-home mums who had previously been very highly qualified executive assistants for some incredible companies and people had been coming to us for years saying, I can't re-enter the workforce. No companies in my local area want me to work part-time around school hours. I can't find work, I'm highly qualified. Can I have some work please? And for years we turned them down. So in effect, all we actually did, when we changed from being, trying to recruit all these people and have them in a small office in Birmingham in the UK to working with hundreds of remote freelance assistants, really all we did was we listened to our customers who wanted to pay less and have a very flexible service that we couldn't offer them before. We listened to uh, well, the workforce who were coming to us in huge numbers and saying, look, we, we'd love to work through you. And we sort of listened and put those two things together. And we've never really looked back. Then in terms of culture, I think we're always trying to learn how to sort of really get our culture over a, a widespread. And there are things we're doing this year. Uh, so we're generating lots of content for our assistants, for example, to sort of really give them an insight and a sense of ownership over how we think. Mm -hmm. But one of the most effective things has been making sure that the culture in our core team of full-time people in Birmingham is so strong and so authentic that whenever they interact with our freelance partners, that really comes across. And we see that in our net promoter feedback. So we get really healthy net promoter scores from um, our assistants. And much of the feedback that they give us is about the interactions that they have with our team and the sort of values that they feel when they interact with our team here. So that's our kind of strategy is to make sure that we're really giving people the autonomy to act in line with our culture and act in line with our values here. And then their interaction points are a chance for us to kind of show that to our freelance partners. And do you track that both the net promoter score and then I guess the two things that you might be also tracking are sort of executive assistant churn and client churn. And is there a correlation? You know, if you've got, you've got a core, great internal core, if a client has an assistant churn, I guess the client is at risk. You must build a bond between your clients and your assistants. There is definitely a link between the two. The most challenging period for us is the first four months of an assistant's lifetime with us okay. and the first four months of a client's lifetime. A lot can happen in those first four months. So you can have an assistant that, you know, we do all of our vetting on and we do all of our sort of selection process and we talk to them extensively and make sure there's a good fit. But you can have an assistant whose expectation might still be different from, you know, life as a freelance executive assistant. You can have people that haven't done it before and don't really know what to expect. And then, you know, it surprises them. You can have people that are sort of weighing up their options and thinking about different routes that want to go down as, a, as an executive assistant that works from home. So that's quite a high risk period for us. And the same with clients that in terms of churn, we measure churn on both sides. And it's that first four month period that can be absolutely critical because you can have someone that's never delegated before that's trying to hit the ground running, 
you know, and suddenly offload all of this work. And that, you know, that can be a huge, huge psychological undertaking for someone to cope with. You talked a little bit there about the assistant onboarding. What do you do for the client? What, what, what have you put in place that's driven or reduced client churn in that first four-month period? We've boosted our retention by about 10% over the last 12 months from a client perspective. And really, the nub of that at the very beginning is a very human action, which is speaking to them. Sounds very simple, but you know, in our journey, we went very tech heavy. And there was a time a couple of years ago where you, maybe going back three years, where you could come to time, etc. You could sign up completely self-service online. You could enjoy a free trial, be linked with an assistant. You know, we'd match you automatically to an assistant. You could start your relationship with an assistant without speaking to one of our team which was incredible in terms of the sort of sign-up volumes that it attracted and what it enabled us to do. And it was very low touch and very inexpensive for us to sort of administer. But actually, when we really started to look in detail about how to boost retention, the answer that we came up with was to say that that first initial contact with us and how you come on board the service as a client is undeniably a human optimized part of our business so it's something that really we need to accept that we should do it humanly and not only that we should do it humanly as well as we possibly can do and so really the client journey begins with getting to know them going through their typical week um, establishing where they're currently losing all of their time talking really very candidly about how they feel if they could reverse that what they would do with their time if they could get that time back and, you know, taking really quite a detailed brief, I suppose, from that client. And then what we do is we put that brief out to our pool of freelance virtual assistants. And we have a bit of a marketplace model where those assistants can apply to work with that client if they feel like they're well suited. There's some technology in the background that makes sure that we're targeting really well suited assistants. And then we will screen the assistant, we will speak to the assistant on the phone, we'll really dig very deep into why they feel that they're a good fit to work with that client. And so we're really, I suppose, in a way, replicating what you'd have to do if you were hiring someone full-time in your business, which is lots of very in-depth conversations, really getting to know what someone's motives are, really trying to establish a fit. And we kind of reverted back to that very time-consuming, quite expensive for us to do approach. But the results are incredible, really, because we just have had a huge increase in the number of people where it's worked because we're investing that time in that very human and probably quite non-scalable process to really get the fit right at the very beginning of the relationship. Is it really non-scalable or is it just unavoidable? I think the reason I say non-scalable is because I've kind of advocated doing the small amount of human things that you have to do in any business as well as you possibly can do for a long time. And that's always been met with a lot of the people I've spoken to who have been, you know, perhaps tech entrepreneurs and, and people trying to build the next big thing. You know, that's always been met with this slightly cynical view that if you introduce human processes into your business, it's not scalable. You know, it's as scalable as we need it to be in our particular business. But it's also just imperative to the success of the client and assistant relationship. And what else have you done inside the business with it? How, how many staff have you got in Birmingham now? Um, 30. 30. So with that team in Birmingham, what have you done to build, to either make sure you hire the right full-time staff or build the right culture? What have you done? In terms of hiring the right people, we use an Amazon technique of, I don't want to say interviewing by committee, but there's a group aspect to our interviewing. So we'll interview people and then, so a minimum of four people see each person that comes in for an interview. The person that comes in for an interview joins us for half a day and spends time in the office and has a lot of like casual chat and looking through how the business works, which is a very transparent approach and was a little bit scary to do to begin with, but is hugely valuable because the people around them in the office gain a, a really good insight as to whether they are a good fit with the team. Uh, but also that person gets a very, very transparent view of exactly what they're signing up for in a way that we weren't doing before. We then have them interviewed by a minimum of four people picked from the team. And we each, this is lifted 
directly from Amazon, but we each write strongly inclined to hire, inclined to hire, inclined not to hire, and strong no hire, anonymously on a piece of paper, put them in the middle of the table. And that's how we make our hiring decision. If we've got more inclined to hire or strong hires, then we go ahead and we hire that person. And that one little step has worked really well for us in finding people that the team considers to be a really good cultural fit. And did you, did you do that because you didn't want to be in a position where if you, the CEO, said, I think we should hire this person, other people would then might think that they didn't want to, but you know, weren't in a position where they wanted to challenge you directly. And so the anonymous thing makes it, there's no confrontation. People aren't trying to sell the candidate to each other. It's just a, what are the scores? I mean, no, the motivation behind it was, as soon as I read about it, I think Kirst actually told me about it, who's the CEO, and it just seemed like a good way of doing it. So we experimented with it and it worked. So there was no direct motivation behind it. We were doing something similar, you know, we were sort of asking people's opinions, but this attaches actually a little bit of accountability to the opinion. People know that when they put that piece of paper in there, you know, they are going to affect the outcome one way or the other. But it genuinely just feels like the right thing to do. It feels like the right way for us to make decisions over who joins the business and the intelligence gained from the team who have sat with that person and worked with them for half a day is invaluable. It always gives us a greater insight than I would have interviewing that person, you know, as I used to do. Have you done any training for the team in terms of interviewing? Have you got a standard set of questions you use? We've got a standard set of questions. Many of them we sort of have borrowed from Zappos and sort of their approach you know, it's sort of really about asking people how lucky they are. And <laughs> I know you're a fan of that. That is my favourite. That is my fa- I only came across that last year, but it's my favourite interview question. And, you know, I might be having a conversation with a candidate and I'm thinking, this is going really well. And I say, how lucky are you? And they say, oh, I don't know, four out of ten. And I'm just thinking, no, no, bye. <laughs> you know, that has become a key question for us. Also asking about people's childhood. I find that really valuable to gain sort of insight into where people have come from. That sort of also seems to reveal a little bit more. The majority actually of what I spend my time asking about an interview is, well, how would we motivate you and how would we coach you? What I'm really interested in doing in an interview is building a list of how this person would be motivated and coached and what they need and what's going to make them feel like they're progressing and what's going to make them feel like they're growing. And, And really writing a list down If that person is successful and we hire them, then that list gets directly used by their coach as the basis for how we're coaching them and the one-to-ones that we're having with them and the conversations that we're having with them. The interesting thing is some people don't know. So you ask them that question, how can we motivate you? They don't know. And for us, that's not a good fit because we need people to tell us and to know and to be self-aware enough about how they're motivated and what's going to make them feel like they're growing and what's going to keep them coming back for more and being happy to be here. We absolutely need them to know what that stuff is so that we can then do that and meet their needs, really. Do you use Gallup Strength Finder in in the recruitment process? We don't use it as a recruitment filter. We use it as soon as we've made a decision to hire. Then at that point, someone goes through that process and then it, it becomes really important to seeing how they fit in with the team and sort of understanding which role suits them best. We don't use it as a, as a screening tool in itself. And you said coach. Do people have managers or coaches or both? Coaches. What we've tried to do, this comes directly from you because you gave me this advice. What we've tried to do is keep small groups of people, so a maximum of six people under each coach, and then... I mean, really, genuinely, the whole approach here is to coach people. And that involves regular one-to-ones. It involves, you know, giving feedback, looking at where they're aiming to go. Uh, Those guys bring an agenda to that. So they bring a list of things that they want to cover. And then, you know, really, it's about, you know, helping people to grow as the business grows. And coaching seemed to be the better way to do that. And using the word coach sends a very positive message to what our intention is, which is to coach you to be more and to coach you into growth rather than trying to manage what you do or tell you what to do or dictate exactly what you do. 
we've been doing that for probably about two years, I think, and we just have not looked back from that change. It's, it was like a light bulb moment to be able to shift from this awkward notion of manager that didn't sit right with us to throwing ourselves into this coaching approach. And is that because from an organisational structure perspective, you're quite a flat quite a flat business i mean you know you've got six employees per coach is it are you just changing the title manager to coach or are these really sort of peers i think it feels like a a kind of peer-led culture it's a really flat structure but i'd say there's what we do is we build in respect for what each person does and that is really evident in the culture so i think sometimes what can happen with flat structures is it can be sort of there can be a lack of control. There can be a lack of structure around people. Certainly, we had a very flat structure at the beginning of the business, but it felt like rudderless or, you know, leaderless almost. You know, and the flat structure didn't really work. It seems to work now. And I think that's because, although it's quite flat, there is a real sense of respect for each and every person as to what they do and what they bring to the business and why they are appreciated by the team. And the way that we've done that is to introduce a daily appreciation huddle, which again, we've been doing for about two years, where the team get round in a big circle and amongst other things, so exchanging various information about what they're working on, what their challenge for today is, what their success from yesterday was, and various other sort of topical updates that they need to share with everyone. What happens is each person picks out one person or multiple people on the team that they want to appreciate. And we go around the group and each person says their appreciation for who it is that they're appreciating. And that was the single most powerful thing we've ever done in terms of culture and structure because it's user-generated content. So it's not coming from on high. It's not a leadership request. It's not a kind of management thing. It's going directly peer-to-peer across the team. But what it seems to do is it seems to really highlight what each person is bringing to the team and bringing to the company. Because when they get appreciated, everyone else sees what it is that they are bringing to the company. And eventually everyone gets appreciated. You know, it just naturally goes in ebbs and flows. And people, I think over time, start building up a really clear idea of what it is that each person around that group is doing for the group. And it's one of those things where, again, it's, I feel strongly, it's that sort of human touch versus technology. You know, you could have had a system where everybody has to fill in an email, send it to you, send it to Kirsty, your CEO, and, you know, and then maybe somebody reads it out or maybe it's published online. And that, you know, me giving you feedback face-to-face across the room means you don't have to have any of the technology and it's way more powerful. Somebody doesn't have to go through the trouble of writing it down and, and the intonation and the facial expression and, you know, the just sort of the joy comes across in a way that you just lose once somebody tries to type that up. Yeah. And so just that alone has been very powerful in, it's why I struggle to answer the, the question about whether this is a flat structure. I think it is, but it's built on sort of respect and recognising what each person brings to the team. And so maybe that's why it can exist as quite a flat structure, because everyone is very, very clear on what each person around them is bringing with them into the culture. And they have to be very clear on that because they're going to see it every day in these appreciation huddles. I've got one thing that it's maybe it's a bit of a jump from where we are to where I want to get to, but it's only because we were talking about this before we started recording, which is this concept that you were describing about new employees come in and sometimes they bring fear with them. I won't say any more because it's much better if, if you describe this whole concept and the impact it's had on people, because I just think it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I think the appreciation huddle is like a, a really good example of how it's possible as a business to get back to being human. And, you know, everyone wants to be appreciated. Everyone wants human interaction. And actually, as you were saying, that if you can appreciate someone in a very human face-to-face way it's way more powerful and this being human approach i think has helped in other ways so we've noticed with multiple people that have joined the business 
that they have often brought something with them from a previous role or even school actually or their upbringing mm -hmm. that we can see like really can get in the way of what they're able to kind of unleash in terms of their talents in this business so taking the example of fear particular member of the team joined having worked in a very large sort of corporate environment in which her immediate manager used fear to kind of control how her team worked. So it was a very fear-based environment where everyone was pretty nervous about what was laying ahead for them when they came into the office, very nervous about doing the wrong thing, making mistakes. And when she joined the business, uh, within a couple of weeks, she was finding it really, really hard because uh, she was scared. And to us, that sort of seemed, you know, it didn't make any sense. You know, we consider that we've got a really safe environment. It didn't make any sense that, you know, there would be anything here that was like triggering this, this fear. But then delving more deeply into it, really, it was clear that the fear had come from this previous manager in this very toxic environment that she'd come from. And I think getting back to being human is all about seeing what's going on. So seeing that there's fear involved, not judging that fear, but then also knowing that if you take a really human approach to this, what you want to do is you want to help that person sort of leave their fear behind and unlock that and move on and know that they're safe. What I used to do going back quite a few years was I used to think, this person has a bit of an issue, you know, they don't seem to feel very comfortable here. I'm going to have to manage them. I'm going to have to do something to make sure that they, you know, don't let these issues get in the way. I might have even just seen it as a sort of personality trait that, you know, actually I wish I'd known before I interviewed them. Whereas the human, really human approach here is to unlock that person from that fear. And so take that person, have a meeting with them and really talk about where this fear has come from, really help them to recognize where the fear is and where it originated from and to see that it's not necessary anymore. That, you know, this is a safe place to work. It's not somewhere that you need to come in and feel fear. And that you can, when you come through those office doors in the morning and they shut behind you, you can imagine that your fear is left outside and it doesn't come in with you. And that really human approach has really worked for us. So, you know, to be able to take someone who's very, very talented and has a great attitude and we know will make a massive contribution to the business. And instead of seeing a personality trait that's holding them back and saying, oh, you know, that person's a bit held back or we don't really understand how that person thinks and, and kind of managing them accordingly to really get very human about this and say, right, well, let's identify what it is. It's fear. And let's talk about where that came from and let's talk about why you don't need to feel that here has really unlocked some great potential in people. And in my mind, it's like a necessary skill of any employer these days is to really be able to identify what psychological traits are happening and what emotions like fear or guilt or, you know, other sort of complex emotions are happening and to be able to have that very human connection with that person in which they're made to feel safe and can feel like they can leave that stuff behind. And we've seen it, great transformations here from someone coming into the business in a junior role, racked full of fear because of a previous employer and transitioning within a year and a half to being a coach, coaching six people and getting fantastic feedback and really thriving. And for me, unlocking that fear and dealing with that at the very beginning of that journey is why she is now in, in that position and has done so well here. Two things spring to mind. One is I've actually seen in some of the companies I've been in, executives bring colleagues at an executive level, bring that fear from big corporates where you know they felt that they had to be antagonistic every day because either somebody would stab them in the back or kill them or and and so you know finding that transition very, very difficult. And finding it very difficult to talk about it because they're at a senior level and they're not supposed to have personality flaws. And so I've seen that. I see those sort of uh, the way in which some managers in some clients of mine work with their teams because it's the way that somebody is obviously they've seen somebody that either that, that's happened to them or maybe it's their childhood. 
but you know do the opposite of building psychological safety in their teams you know they're sort of erratic bullying uh maybe although that's certainly not how they would perceive it and I, it just takes me back to the work that google did on project aristotle where you know they said one of the, absolutely one of the cores for building high performance teams in their organization and they have no shortage of talented people it was around psychological safety and and as you said that just that's absolutely building that trust is absolutely at the heart of building building high performing companies how did you stumble across that was there a book was there a podcast what was the sort of the trigger for you where you went from the tech entrepreneur who for whom people weren't a thing and it was about automating everything to actually being in a position where you're having a conversation with an employee about it's okay you can leave your fear behind I think it was a, a personal transition, really. I think probably st- triggered by my mum dying in 2011. And I think that sort of, you know, probably made me reassess a lot of things about my life. A few years later, I went to see a therapist to sort of, you know, talk about how I was thinking about things. And really, because it started to dawn on me that maybe I could change how I was thinking about a few things that were kind of holding me back. And really that was one of the most powerful things I've ever done because being curious enough to go and reconsider how I think was hugely powerful for me. And I think doing that, I uncovered that there are really only two or three fundamental sort of things at the heart of everything that we do. Things like recognizing fear and being able to be vulnerable and having very sort of personal conversations with people is one of those things, really. And so it was a personal journey of reconsidering how I think, discovering that I could think a completely different way. And many of the things I was carrying around with me and much of the fear I was carrying around around with me, I could let go of and didn't need to carry that around. And I think when you've discovered that yourself and you've been through this kind of journey yourself, it then becomes almost a compulsion to share that with as many people as possible. Because if you know, there's someone in front of you and you can see that what it is, is they have some fear that they've continued through and they're carrying it. They've got it in a little bag by their side and you can help them to release that fear, put it down and, uh, and to really flourish. It's a fantastic thing to be able to do for people. And so that really is why Time Etc. feels the way that it does. And I think it's why I'm now able to do those things is really because of my own personal curiosity into how I was thinking. And maybe actually there was a different way to be from how I was, you know, five or 10 years ago. You talked about the daily huddles, but I just wonder what your, you know, you've got these 700 remote employees, what communication rhythm you have found works best with them. I think this is an area that, you know, we're focusing on now. I think we have, speaking honestly, I'm not sure we have a sort of communication rhythm. I think we're quite sporadic. What I do know is as much human-to-human contact as possible is a great thing. And so that's what we've invested in and we've grown our team that have first-hand contact with our partners quite extensively over the last year. At the moment, what works for us is lots of human contact, lots of speaking to uh, people and really sort of trying to find out what they're looking to achieve, treating them as partners and also really, I suppose, as clients and, you know, trying to make sure that we're doing the right thing for those guys. In terms of what we want to do with our communication, I think it's challenging because what we don't want to do is send a newsletter out, you know, and sort of do anything that's really too inhuman. I think we want to keep a very person-to-person feel and connection happening. But one of the things that we're investing in is to produce lots of content all under one sort of branded umbrella. And so when our assistant partners log into our platform, we want them to find, aside from the work that they're doing and logging in to earn money and to do work and to find clients, we want them to find lots of really interesting and helpful content that will not only help them to um, perform at their very best to our platform, but will also help them to go out and sort of find other things to work on, go out and find clients on their own if they want to, completely outside of time, et cetera, 
ways in which we can help them spend quality time with their families, ideas for food they can cook. Though I was talking to somebody the other day who, in his business, it sounds like you've adopted a similar strategy, which is almost that your employees are sort of on a tour of duty with you. They're not working with you for life. And so if they come and spend some time working for time, et cetera, and you've equipped them to not work for time, et cetera, anymore because they can do better, earn more, then that's okay. I think there are two things here. There's, there's our freelance virtual assistants and we want those guys to thrive inside and outside of time, et cetera. So the mission is that they have enough work that they can do from home to support their family. And if that all comes from time, et cetera, that's great. But genuinely what we want is for that to come from wherever it needs to come from. And, you know, we want them to be a part of time, et cetera, for as long as possible. And I think the challenge with our smaller core team of employees is it's kind of a tour of duty, but really it's encouraging everyone to grow and then doing our very best to keep up with their needs once they've grown. So it's not being afraid of people growing. That's maybe the challenge in lots of businesses. And certainly so many of the people that we've recruited into time, et cetera, have had past experiences in businesses where they've been kept in their position and there is no growth available and you know growth is a very scary prospect for the business owner because it means expense and because it means challenge presumably and maybe there's an egoic factor in there whereas for us it's like you've got to grow because if you don't grow you'll leave but also even if you don't leave you'll be unhappy and you won't feel satisfied with with what's happening we'll help you to grow first we'll worry about how we're going to keep up with your needs as you grow later and funnily enough funnily enough there is yet to be a single example of where someone has overgrown <laughs> what we're doing we've ju it just seems to work you know that as people grow they offer more value to the business as they offer more value it's easy to progress them in other ways and it's easy to find places that they fit in where they can have an even bigger impact it's, it's funny isn't it that sort of some owners business owners business managers and that scarcity mindset just never works out for them but they never quite grasp it but I, I made that transition i went i went from in the early days of time etc you know people would ask me for pay rises and i would feel completely unable to do that because i felt like there was scarce resource and i couldn't really feel like i could do that and i would find ways of telling myself that there was justification for not doing that and we'll do it next year or you'll have to prove yourself first and then and so I was trying to control that sort of for the greater good of the business. That's what I felt I was doing at the time. And then when I released that and I said, I have no control over it, people have to grow and people's salaries have to increase and people need to feel like they're progressing through life and that they're being rewarded for what they do. When I released that and I allowed, allowed that to happen and worried about how we were going to sort of pay for it or how we were going to sustain it later, really we've never looked back that has been an incredibly powerful change to make and it amazes me how many people don't make that change and how many people um i mean i interviewed someone earlier today where the reason for looking to leave her current employer is that they offer progression in title only so they will upgrade someone's title and give them a new title a more senior title but there's no salary increase or even review of of salary that goes with that move and unsurprisingly, title only goes so far and she wants to feel like she's really valued somewhere. That sort of wanting to feel like you're moving forward is just sort of that, it's sort of a fundamental human requirement around sort of motivation. If you could go back in time, knowing what you know now, what mistake would you avoid or what would you do differently? I honestly think I would work on myself I would have worked on myself earlier. So at the beginning of time, et cetera, when I look back, I realized how little I knew. And, you know, I was 23, 24. I think your brain only stops developing from adolescence when you're 25. I didn't have any experience. I think I was probably a very challenging person to work for. Um, I was very governed by fear and other sorts of probably quite unhelpful emotions. And there were a lot of really good people that came to work with me who I suspect I was, you know, quite a challenge to work for. 
And so I think that would be the thing that I'd go back and change would, I, I would probably go back and recognize the need for self-investment and understanding how you think and what it is that drives you and what emotions affect you and going back and understanding that first and then building a business second. Yeah. What books do you think people should read? You got one or two or three suggestions, books that made a difference to you? The one that I think could have real impact is sort of understanding how the brain works and understanding why we think the way that we think is called Buddha's Brain, which is by uh, Richard Mendius and Rick Hansen. There are also some other books by Ruby Wax, actually, that I really recommend. They're very, they're very funny. They've got titles like How to Be Human, the manual. The reason for mentioning that is because that's why I read about Buddha's Brain. Uh, she recommends it as a sort of in-depth kind of look at how the brain works. But I found that book sort of really powerful in understanding the physical reason that we think the way that we think and the physical way in which you can change your brain if you can update the way that you think. And that's been very helpful in sort of understanding why the people around me and myself think the way we think. Um, and so for anyone listening that you know is kind of curious about what we've said about you know having conversations with people about fear and making that really human connection and understanding how people think i think that's a really good starting point that explains a lot of the kind of theory behind it okay any business books in terms of a business book delivering happiness by tony shea was one of the most powerful business books i've read from the sheer number of things that you can borrow that he openly shares. So I think it's one of those books that you can't really say listen to in the car because you want to stop and write stuff down or you want to keep a note of things to use later. And so that, that probably is my top business book in terms of takeaways and ideas that I've actually been able to go away and implement. Fantastic. Barnaby, thank you very much indeed for your time today. You're very welcome. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.